driving that forward and ensuring that it sticks. I think one of the challenges of serving in federal government, especially as a political appointee, is that my time is limited. Mm -hmm. I am not here as a career, and I have the very good fortune of working with so many dedicated and talented public servants. This stuff needs to last, and this stuff needs to continue to move forward, especially because, you know, climate, the climate crisis, again, is rather existential and something that we are at a very critical juncture in addressing. Welcome to the Wharton Current. This is your host, Adriel Barrett-Johnson. In this episode, I sat down with Christine Harada, Wharton alum and current executive director of the Federal Permitting Council. We discussed the implementation of the two big climate bills in the last couple of years, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill and the IRA. Along the way, we get political and even a bit philosophical, discussing her career, the value of working in the public sector, and her philosophy around the importance of being engaged in civic life as a business leader. Today, we have Christine Harada, fellow Wharton graduate and executive director of the Federal Permitting Council. Christine made the jump to public service during the Obama administration when she was the Federal Chief Sustainability Officer. Welcome, Christine. Thank you so much for having me. Christine, how about you kick us off by giving an overview of your career and your path to public service? I would be the absolute example of how people can have multiple careers within a lifetime. I have done many different things to include aerospace engineering, management consulting, software engineering, public service, of course, serving in the Obama administration as chief sustainability officer, as well as at the general services administration. And of course, now being involved with infrastructure permitting. And the common thread amongst all of those very disparate sounding roles really is a commitment to the mission. I'm one of those people that really needs to believe in both the people as well as the mission and purpose of an organization. You know, I started out my career in aerospace engineering because not just because I loved all things aerospace and space and inspired by the Apollo mission, things like that, but it was very much in support of a lot of our nation's efforts at the time, you know, with the with the Cold War, to be blunt. And it was something that's very inspirational for me to be able to be part of that kind of bigger mission and bigger team and to know that I'm contributing to a greater good. How would you characterize how you see the mission? If the common thread is being mission-oriented the whole way through, How would you describe what that mission is right now? And to the extent that you see it as one coherent mission all the way through, I'd love to hear more about that. Absolutely. So definitely mission-oriented, but likely not the same mission all the way through. Maybe perhaps a you know, a common theme is that I'm contributing to the greater good and having, you know, a much larger impact or as large an impact as I possibly can in my own personal capacity. Currently with a lot of my work in the Biden administration, you know, working on infrastructure is very much driven by my commitment to addressing the climate crisis. Certainly during the Obama administration, when I served as chief sustainability officer, that was a fantastic opportunity to take a lot of steps within the federal government and show a lot of leadership when at the time sustainability wasn't nearly as pervasive nor front of mind for many folks, uh, whether it be in the public sector or even in the private sector. And I would say one of the silver linings of the previous administration was that that really spurred a lot of action and urgency across private sector, philanthropies, other nonprofits, and other governments as well. I've been working on the climate issue now for going on seven, eight years at this point. 
And a lot of the work that I'm doing today is very much in, in the hopes of advancing our transition towards a clean energy economy. How do we deploy more solar or energy storage or EVs or you know, other forms of renewable energy? How do we also help with enhancing the overall accessibility of broadband you know, to the greater American public, things of that nature? When you were making that first jump to working not just in the public sector broadly, but working directly for the government, how did you think about making that jump? It seems like you had some pretty incredible opportunities that were pulling you into that, but would be curious how you decided to do that and how was that the right time for it? Yeah, no, that's a great question. It was something that I toyed with candidly for, I toyed with the idea of working for the government for many years while I was still a consultant. The federal government was one of our clients. And so I've done a lot of work around that front in that, in that type of role. I was extremely fortunate that I came across the opportunity to candidly just even submit my resume to serve in the Obama administration. And as it turns out, one of my former mentors from my days at Booz Allen very casually said to me one day, hey, you know, the president's looking for people. Same tone of voices. You know, the Starbucks down the street's got a sale on those cups. Yeah. <laughs> totally the same exact tone of voice. And so I was like, well, listen, if a girl can dream, uh, here's my resume. And at the time, I'd been in management consulting for almost 10 years at that point, And I was kind of ready for a change. It was the longest job that I've had after graduating from college even. And so it was, it was something that I was looking to do something different. I knew that part. The other driver of it, candidly, and is representative, I guess, of my generation, if you will, is that my late father had happened to just pass away. And we were very much part of that sandwich generation where I had young kids taking care of them at home, et cetera, while trying to balance work. And then also trying to help with managing my parents' healthcare and doing that from a distance. At the time I was supporting them, you know, both financially as well as emotionally might be the incorrect language, but I would help them with translating you know, their questions for doctors and things like that. And so really helping out a lot on that front. And I felt that prior to his death, I didn't have the financial freedom to be candid, to be able to take such a big pay cut and work for the federal government. I will say that that is, that is one of the unfortunate positive outcomes out of that that came out of that particular situation. And so I wanted to make sure that it, it also came at a time in my life where I wanted to make sure that I was doing my dad right and doing the right things, serving an administration that again, I believed in, I believed in President Obama, still do, fabulous guy, tremendous human being. And so I knew that that was a tremendous both mission oriented and core values aligned mission that I wanted to make sure that I took every opportunity to participate in. The first thing I want to say is I'm so glad to have an example in you of someone who wasn't slowed down by spending more time with your family in that way, because I think that's really important. And I think there are a lot of just anxieties that you'll be slowed down if you make those choices. And so having examples of people who are very clearly not slowed down in their career because they made that choice is helpful. Oh, um, thank you. It's, yeah. It's, thank you for sharing. Yeah. I hope, you know. One day I also have former mentors who are like, hey, <laughs> casually drop a resume in. Um, that yes. also sounds like a really good timing. hundred percent. And I would say one of the big lessons learned, at least for me coming out of that was cognizant, be reasonably aware of what it is that you're looking for kind of at all times. What is it that you want out of this particular? 
particular job or this particular, maybe it's a nonprofit activity that you're engaged in or you know what you're doing with the volunteering at your child's school or whatever the case might be. And also don't hesitate to ask. If you're looking for an opportunity, just ask. I would have never thought about, I would have dreamed about and solely dreamed about serving in the Obama administration if I hadn't actually asked for my mentor's advice. I entered the Obama administration first at the General Services Administration, and that caused me to be elevated, or at least for consideration, to become the Federal Chief Sustainability Officer. That too came out of networking, I guess, if you will, and like consistently maintaining and building relationships with folks. So in that particular case, my predecessor and I, we had done some work on the executive order around federal sustainability for the next decade. Um, and we were catching up over a lunch. And she said, I've got news. I'm like, oh, what news? I'm leaving the government. I'm going to, I'm going to Google. She's now the chief sustainability officer over at Google. And I said, that's amazing. Take me with you. Ha ha. Because we were still in Washington, D.C. I really wanted to come back to California. Side story. Anyway, and I went on to ask her, like, so who's going to take your place? Like, how, how's that going to work? And she told me that they didn't have anybody in mind just as of yet. They just kind of started the process. And so that was when I took advantage of the opportunity and I raised my hand. I was like, can I raise my hand? Can I put my name into the ring to be considered? For, like, would you guys be open to that? And that is how that happened. And it was, and it was an incredible moment for me because I had not really been raised in a way, or at least, you know, with people of my generation and my cultural background, we were frequently told like, oh, you know, keep your head down, like do good work. And that's great. But a little bit, you know, not nearly as much of the self-promotional type of thing or putting yourself out there in that type of way. And so that was just a, another head turning moment of, wow, just ask. It's amazing what can happen. Absolutely. And when you were taking on that role, how did you think about what that role was and how did you assess priorities? Yes. So at the time, the, the main priority was to ensure that we were setting up the administration for success in executing on that particular executive order. There were a number of very aspirational goals articulated in there around energy efficiency, buying renewable energy for the federal government, you know, greeting the federal fleet, greening our overall supply chain and the $680 billion that the United States government spends in procurement every year. And so a lot of the work was focused on what are the biggest balls that I can move forward in the shortest period of time? And again, how do I maximize the impact on that? And I also wanted to make sure that I was doing it in a way that would last. I served in that role towards the tail end of the administration. And at the time, of course, we didn't know how the election was going to turn out, but I wanted to make sure that I was laying the groundwork in a way such that if it's going to be a freight train analogy, if you will, like I got that freight train running and it was going to keep on going, even if I wasn't there. Absolutely. And then the Obama administration did conclude and you shifted back into the private sector in the intervening administration. Did your work during that time influence the focus you took when you came back with the Biden administration in terms of focusing on permitting, focusing on infrastructure? Uh, did you choose the permitting council specifically and how did that play out? Sure. So I would say that a lot of the work that I did both in the intervening years, as well as here at the administration right now, still very much dovetails into the overall climate change issue, certainly from a different angle, if you will. When I was in the intervening years, I was in um, private sector doing impact investing because I really wanted to bring more private capital 
to address climate change. And that was the work that I did at IX Investments. And, you know, coming back to the administration, it's still very much also a good combination of both my business slash private sector experience, as well as building on my previous experience as chief sustainability officer during the Obama administration. It might feel like it's at a larger scale just simply because of the nature of the types of projects that we're working on. So for example, we're, we're helping agencies with permitting offshore wind, which candidly we are standing up a brand new industry in this country. I don't think that's been done in decades for sure. We're also working on building out interstate transmission lines for transporting electric energy or electricity, obviously from the wind heavy states and distributing it to the population heavy states. Uh, and so in that regard, I would say the mission is, is very similar. And with respect to, did I choose the permitting council specifically? That was part of a series of conversations around how can I best contribute to the administration and its goals. And there are a number of different options I could have worked, you know, in different agencies, whether it be Department of Energy, you know, go back to General Services Administration, maybe over at Treasury working on climate finance or something, you know, but permitting council was one of the options that was super attractive for me, candidly, because it was very similar to my last role in that. It's an all across the government effort. It's not just like focused on one agency, but it's all cross government. Again, pushing forward in a big way to help the transition to a clean energy economy. And it also, you know, plays a lot to my personal strengths around, you know, change management, program management, managing very large um, projects and programs and driving, driving that forward and ensuring that it sticks. I think one of the challenges of serving in federal government, especially as a political appointee, is that my time is limited. Mm-hmm. I am not here as a career, and I have the very good fortune of working with so many, oh, so many dedicated and talented public servants. They're amazing people. Many of them, I call them, I nickname them my national treasures because they really know their stuff. They I love serve- that. They serve this nation for decades and they know the history. They know where the stuff is buried. They know how to get things done. And frequently, again, back to that whole mission alignment, core values alignment, you know, they want to do good things for the nation. And so, you know, making sure that whatever changes that I am trying to bring to bear to both the federal government, as well as candidly with the project developer community, that it lasts. It doesn't do anybody any good if it's just a flash in a pan, a fancy announcement, and then we're done and we're out. This stuff needs to last and this stuff needs to continue to move forward, especially because, you know, climate, the climate crisis, again, is rather existential and it's something that we're at a very critical juncture in addressing. Absolutely. And that whole of government position really does position you for a lot of impact, but I know it also makes it very hard to get things done. So I I certainly see that as an act of service to be taking up that work. So thank you. Thank you. Before we go further, maybe we should define what is the permitting council and how would you define the scope of responsibilities? Sure. So the permitting council, I like to say that we are the newest member of the federal family. We are a council, a group of 13 federal agency senior leaders and senior leadership from the White House who work together to make the federal permitting process work better. That's better coordinated, it's much more collaborative and more transparent. To take it back a couple of steps to really help paint the picture, I'm not confident to a degree your audience may be 
um, as familiar with a nerdly topic like permitting, but let's say, for example, when you've got a large infrastructure project, you know, whether it be a broadband network across the state or offshore wind facilities, you know, 25 miles off the coast of the United States, to ensure that safety requirements and standards are met, the government at all levels, federal, tribal, state, local, uh, requires developers to obtain proper permits and conduct reviews on the environmental impact. And that review is super critical, not just because it protects like, clean air and clean water for, for our residents, but also because it allows for public input to be collected and considered in ensuring that effective communities have a chance to weigh in on these project alternatives. And to help address those challenges, as you might imagine, for super large, complicated projects, there's a number of different federal agencies involved. It's probably going to be very highly controversial, you know, or for the various communities. So in 2015, Congress passed a law called the Fixing America Surface Transportation Act. And under Title One, Title 41, sorry, of that act, so hence FAST 41, our agency was created and was charged with bringing agencies across the government together to coordinate environmental reviews and permitting activities, to review those challenges, and to share best practices. We publish a public-facing online tracking system of projects in the permitting process. It's called the Federal Infrastructure Permitting Dashboard to both provide transparency and accountability for the progress, as well as to help coordinate those projects. And we work to ensure that the overall environmental review and permitting process is predictable, that it provides a forum for resolving complex issues, in that it ensures transparency and accountability to the American people and provides for efficient collaboration and coordination. And what I mean by you know, providing a form for resolving complex issues, sometimes, sometimes it's a matter of just ensuring that you've got appropriate number of uh, resources allocated towards a part, working a particular project. And you know, calling that out you know, with the various senior leaders at the agencies, that's a simple thing for us to do. But frequently, we come across some pretty sticky policy questions, right? One of the big questions that we are grappling with right now and trying to work through, just to bring it back again to the offshore wind example, is how do we ensure that we are balancing the protection of you know, various species, endangered species, like the North American right whale? They are at a critical point in terms of their population. And yet at the same time, we want to make sure that, you know, we are transitioning ourselves away from fossil fuel based, you know, energy production and towards clean energy. Offshore wind is remarkable for that. And how do we do that? How do we effectively co-use the ocean in a way that sustains, protects endangered species, provides for clean energy, provides construction jobs, and, you know, a lot of the, the support for the communities there in, in the regions. And certainly last but not least, or, or other industries as well, like commercial and recreational fisheries or other vessel traffic. We also, of course, have to coordinate with the Department of Defense. There's a lot of security operations that happen off our coastlines. So all of those things are, are, are the typical types of issues that we are wrestling with on a daily basis. That's a huge job. It's a fun job. Yeah. Well, and it's so critical for the work that needs to be done for climate. And I know that you were very involved with the IRA. Could you speak to the permitting aspects of the IRA and what your involvement more broadly looked like? Sure, absolutely. So just to work backwards, you know, with respect to the Inflation Reduction Act, there are a number of different players who are all very much involved in a lot of the provisions for that particular legislation, record setting, historic investment, which is fantastic. From a permitting perspective, the Inflation Reduction Act 
provided for an unprecedented, truly historic and unprecedented amount of financial resources to a number of agencies, over a billion dollars for the sole purpose of you know, assisting with permitting. My agency alone was allotted $350 million and our funding will be used not just to help our sister federal agencies and help with the coordination efforts as well, but we have a unique authority in which we can transfer funding to tribal, state, local governments um, to assist them with their efforts. So for example, if you've got an electricity transmission line, it's gonna be crossing multiple states. Not only do you need to likely go through a federal permitting process, but the states also have their own version of you know, permits that they need to administer and provide for as well. Relatedly, some local governments, you know, down to the county level also have a say in that. And so depending on the situation, you know, let's say, for example, if it's a capacity issue, or maybe even a capability issue, like, you know, I am, um, I had the authority to be able to help provide some funding to be able to provide assistance to those particular jurisdictions so that it doesn't create a bottleneck. Yeah, that's a, it's a huge scale in terms of both the absolute amount of funding, but also the the step change, the increase in funding from what there was before. Now that we're approximately a year out from the infrastructure bill being passed and a few months out from the IRA being passed, what does it look like in terms of implementation? So the Inflation Reduction Act was passed and signed in August of 2022. The bipartisan infrastructure law was passed in November of 2021. And so that also Historic achievement, once in a lifetime investment in our infrastructure. Clearly, as you can hear, I'm very excited by that. So many good things coming out of that. We've already deployed upwards of $180 billion. It's a $1.2 trillion bill, good for 10 years. We've already distributed over $180 billion across so many different sectors, EV charging, broadband grants, also for roads and bridges and other transit infrastructure, railroad infrastructure, so many good things that are coming out of that. And as it pertains to the, the the permitting side of things, you know, we since then have done a number of things, one of which is to develop what's called the permitting action plan. And that is our all across the federal government uh, roadmap to assist agencies in strengthening and accelerating the federal permitting environmental review process. Key to that plan is ensuring that our environmental reviews are effective, efficient, and transparent. And in working with the White House, we've directed federal agencies to leverage our council and our expanded authorities under the bipartisan infrastructure law to improve coordination amongst agencies and help avoid and resolve potential conflicts. One of the other great things about the bipartisan infrastructure law directly on our agency is that we were afforded a number of different things. For example, we were made permanent. We were a very temporary agency before, but now we're a permanent entity. Our authorities were also expanded to now be able to to help facilitate working with tribal nations. And if it's a tribal sponsor project, we've made it easier for them to participate in the program. The expansion of my funding transfer authority came out of the bipartisan infrastructure law as well. So whereas I was only able to share funds with my sister federal agencies, that's when it got expanded to include tribal, state, and local governments as well. And I think that, you know, I would like to think that it's having a profound effect on how we collectively across the federal government uh, work on infrastructure permitting and development. That makes sense. What would you say you see as the most innovative parts of maybe we'll say both the infrastructure bill and the IRA in terms of those being the big pieces of climate legislation in the last year? I don't know that it's maybe an innovative thing for me to say, 
perhaps, but in both cases with the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act, it really focuses on providing carrots and incentives for Mm. project developers to help with that transition. And I think it really builds on a lot of the lessons that we have very painfully learned over the past 10 years or so with respect to trying to pass some sort of climate legislation. So definitely going the carrot route as opposed to the stick route, I think helped us get it over the finish line in this Congress. I mean, in our Congress, extraordinarily chaotic and, you know, potentially hostile entity, depending on the the particular topic matter itself. And the fact that we got it through this Congress is, I think, in and of itself, an amazing accomplishment. I can't I can't undersell that particular statement. It really is. The Inflation Reduction Act is also groundbreaking legislation in that it makes the largest investment ever in combating climate change and invests approximately $369 billion in energy security and climate change programs over the next 10 years, focusing on creating jobs, specifically in manufacturing solar panels, wind turbines, and more. You know, but one of my personal biases, of course, as the head of the permitting council is that the investment again in infrastructure permitting and the $350 million that were allocated to the permitting council actually helps us, enables us to make this infrastructure investment a reality. That is absolutely pivotal. I don't think that that focus was there before. And that investment will prove to be a game changer, in my opinion, for the decades to come. It makes sense to me that the the innovation was in strategy, which helped get it over the line. I, I think at the end of the day, that is the piece that matters most. I would say at least at, at least in particular with policy. Since we've had this slew of climate related policies getting passed in the last year, assuming that we're not yet at policy utopia, we haven't done everything that there is to do. How would you describe the priorities now policy-wise? Like what's left to do? Or is it just let's all focus on implementing these historic landmark pieces of legislation? Yes. So absolutely focusing. So on the execution side, 100%, we got to be laser focused. We got to deliver on that because it's a fabulous opportunity. And these kinds of opportunities only come along again once in a generation, right? So for example, we are, we as an administration are very highly focused on developing out all sorts of renewable energy production as well as transmission in the United States. With respect to developing offshore wind, you know, we are looking to deploy 30 gigawatts of offshore wind in the United States by 2030, while of course protecting biodiversity and promoting ocean co-use. We are, in our, our office is a very key implementing agent of that goal. Another goal for the Biden-Harris administration, of course, is to really supercharge the deployment of solar and other renewable energy production. And of course, last but not least, thinking through the transmission lines, that is indeed very much a bottleneck. So it's one thing to be able to quote unquote harvest the clean energy from various sources, whether it be solar in the Southwest or wind in Texas or the Midwest or whatever the case might be. But frequently, those are also places where the population centers and the market candidly for that energy is not quite there. And so building out those super critical transmission lines is a big area of focus for us. From a policy perspective, I think some of the announcements that you've seen coming out this far have really focused on how can we help encourage, motivate, and incentivize maybe even the private sector into investing their dollars more into these climate priorities. So for example, with a lot of the carrot elements, if you will, how do we deploy the tax credits that are very much out there? I know that this is also the first time that the IRS is perhaps the most critical implementing agent for this particular bill. 
And as such, you've probably seen some announcements in the media around, you know, the IRS and its hiring efforts around that to make sure that they're developing the appropriate rules and able to actually execute on that. Relatedly, you know, with the SEC in the rulemaking process, there, requiring companies to disclose their GHG emissions, scopes one, two, and three, and ensuring that that continues to remain as like front and center of the overall just collective effort, again, across government, across private sector, and also partnering super closely with both philanthropies as well as labor organizations to ensure that that transition is just. We want to make sure that we're actually creating the jobs and that we're doing so at good wages. For example, a lot of the work that we're doing with Offshore Wind, the leasing provisions include a lot of project labor agreement type of language. It also includes credits for project developers that invest in the local community, whether it be for workforce training, community centers, you know, things of that nature, manufacturing facilities. We're also seeing a lot of increased partnership across maybe untraditional partners, if you will. So for example, we had finished permitting the largest solar and energy storage facility out in Southern Nevada, where the tribal nation, the Moapa Paiute Band, partnered closely with the federal government, with the state government in Nevada, as well as with the local community there and the local unions and trades to build out very successfully, both physically successfully, like from an engineering and construction perspective, but also very financially successfully, a project It can be done. And so there are some great examples like that out there that I would like to see be copy pasted. There's no reason, there's no good reason why we can't do more of that. Absolutely. And I'm so excited to see what the next few years bring with respect to that. We always like to end with a little bit of career advice. So particularly around advice for how to build skills now in the private sector that would potentially make people more effective later in the public sector or advice around how to think about building a career and shaping a career where you're able to have these multiple careers as you have had and to spend time in public service and then also spend time working on similar mission-oriented projects in the private sector. I would personally love to hear advice that you would have on those. Yeah, absolutely. I would highly encourage your listeners to please consider public service. We are a better nation, a better government because of, you know, really smart people like you all in serving the nation. I frequently tell my staff that, you know, ours is a government of, by, and for the people, and we can't do good government without good people. Secondly, a lot of Wharton students might think, well, you know, I'm a business person, I've majored in finance or entrepreneurship, or whatever the case might be. And like, I don't know how I can really contribute to many things in the government. Allow me to please dispel that myth because there's so many things that we can and do learn at Wharton and throughout their careers that, you know, might have traditionally fed out of Wharton if management consulting, banking, or whatever the case might be, even entrepreneurship that a hundred percent could be applicable in federal government. So for example, let's say you're an entrepreneur and you've got experience with both fundraising as well as operations and an advisory, you can also go, and let's say, you know, you're at that point in your career where you decide like, I guess I can go the investment route and be like a VC or an advisor to VC. I'd like to encourage you to consider working with the Small Business Administration. 26 million small businesses in the United States. That is absolutely the backbone. That is not just political rhetoric. It is absolutely the economic backbone of this nation. And so to the extent to which that, you know, your experience could absolutely be brought to bear, 
with respect to thinking through how do we ensure that there's more capital being allocated or, you know, provided to maybe like communities of color or entrepreneurs of color or like lower income neighborhoods, traditional, not the historically kind of disadvantaged entrepreneurs, right? We've all seen the data around that front. If you're a banker, Believe me, a lot of that financing uh, and spreadsheet modeling can come in very handy, you know, within the federal government itself. Treasury Department has a lot of opportunities, you know, related to climate finance. And we're thinking through if you wanted both on the domestic front, internationally, we've got opportunities working with USAID the U.S. Agency for International Development, especially around like, let's say if they want to build out their renewable energy sector, what are the investments that they need to be making around that? Department of Commerce, of course, has the Economic Development Agency, the International Trade Agency, all these different agencies, you know, whose mission it is to build economic entities, build businesses, bring more foreign dollars into the United States, bring United States dollars throughout to other nations. So please don't think that just because you went to Wharton and you've got an MBA means I can't do work in federal government. That is absolutely 100% not the case. I am absolutely living proof of that. And there's so many other different examples out there around, whether it be around thinking through the federal supply chain. How do we think about securing our own procurement and our access to critical minerals and semiconductors that are obviously of tremendous importance for our national security? How do we think about, you know, how should the government think about investing in those? How do, what kind of models have been successful from the private sector that you might be able to bring in and inject into government? And so allow me to make that pitch to your listeners. Absolutely. I started out working in public sector consulting and being very embedded within a couple of different agencies, including USAID and Power Africa. And so I very much believe in the work that government does. And I found it incredibly intellectually stimulating and rewarding in terms of the scale that you're able to operate on when you're working with the federal government. Absolutely. And great people telling you, absolutely such a joy to work with so many national treasures. Absolutely. Well, I also want to ask, is there anything else that you would want to share with our listeners? Anything you would want to plug or make sure that people know about? In the business community, I think many business leaders historically have been reticent to get involved politically. Mm. And I think that landscape has certainly changed rather dramatically over the last six years or so. I would like to encourage business leaders to continue to stand up for what they think is right for their businesses, not just from a shareholder perspective. That is absolutely 100% important. It's, you know, what's required of you under under a lot of the the laws and and the regulations, you know, governing publicly traded companies, but especially as it pertains to protecting your staff and your customers. Whether you like it or not, I think many of the listeners um, for your podcast are business leaders. And, you know, that also carries with it additional responsibilities that you are leaders in your communities. How are you to find your community, whether it be your town or your city, county or your state, but what you say can and does matter. And to the extent that I can encourage you to continue to voice your support for both policies as well as actions that are in alignment with your core values, I highly encourage that. Yeah, well, to that, I would say here, here. And, you know, the way I think of it is that businesses are part of our social fabric and our community. It's not just the business leaders that are part of the community, but businesses themselves are are parts of our community. 
And at the end of the day, politics is the community deciding how it will relate to each other. And so businesses, as part of the fabric of the community, need to be part of that conversation and part of deciding how are we all going to relate to each other and what do we want that to look like? Because that's what politics and then policy is. Absolutely. Well, Christine, it has been fantastic to have you on this episode. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on.